Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we are starting the final chapter of The Conquest of Bread. Starting, but definitely not finishing. The rest of this chapter will be coming in next week's episode. Two quick notes on this chapter. This chapter goes deep and heavy into extremely specific logistics, which means you're going to be hearing me read lots of numbers that are very specific and not rounded numbers, including times when Kropotkin writes a rounded number, but then writes a more specific one in brackets, and I have to read both? Just know, you can let the numbers wash over you. The main point you are supposed to get anyway is about the efficiencies available already and further efficiencies that can be made with farming technologies. (laughs) Uh, The other note is that there is a word in this book that shouldn't have been written in the first place and I don't intend to read, but unlike other times this has come up, there was not an easy substitution for me to make without making the sentence more confusing. There is a point in this chapter where you will just hear me say redacted. You can probably guess what was in there. You don't really need to know what that word is, but you do need to know why I'm saying redacted in the middle of a sentence. Anyway, let's get started on our last chapter of the book. Chapter 17. Agriculture. Section 1. Political economy has often been reproached with drawing all its deductions from the decidedly false principle that the only incentive capable of forcing a man to augment his power of production is personal interest in its narrowest sense. The reproach is perfectly true, so true that epochs of great industrial discoveries and true progress in industry are precisely those in which the happiness of all was inspiring men and in which personal enrichment was least thought of. The great investigators in science and the great inventors aimed, above all, at giving greater freedom of mankind. And if Watt, Stevenson, Jacquard, etc. could have only foreseen what a state of misery their sleepless nights would bring to the workers, they certainly would have burned their designs and broken their models. Another principle that pervades political economy is just as false. It is the tacit admission, common to all economists, that if there is often overproduction in certain branches, a society will nevertheless never have sufficient products to satisfy the wants of all, and that consequently the day will never come when nobody will be forced to sell his labor in exchange for wages. This tacit admission is found at the basis of all theories and all the so-called laws taught by economists. And yet, it is certain that the day when any civilized association of individuals would ask itself, what are the needs of all and the means of satisfying them? It would see that, in industry, as in agriculture, it already possesses sufficient to provide abundantly for all needs, on condition that it knows how to apply these means to satisfy real needs. That this is true as regards industry, no one can contest. Indeed, it suffices to study the processes already in use, to extract coals and ore, to obtain steel and work it, to manufacture, on a great scale, what is used for clothing, etc. In order to perceive that we could already increase our production fourfold or more, 
and yet use for that less work than we are using now. We go further. We assert that agriculture is in the same position. Those who cultivate the soil, like the manufacturers, already could increase their production, not only fourfold, but tenfold, and they can put it into practice as soon as they feel the need of it, as soon as the socialist organization of work will be established, instead of the present capitalistic one. Each time agriculture is spoken of, men imagine a peasant bending over the plough, throwing badly assorted corn haphazard into the ground, and waiting anxiously for what the good or bad season will bring forth. They think of a family working from morn to night, and reaping as a reward a rude bed, dry bread, and coarse beverage. In a word, they picture the savages of La Bruyere. And for these men, ground down to such a misery, the utmost relief that society proposes is to reduce their taxes or their rent. But even most social reformers do not care to imagine a cultivator standing erect, taking leisure, and producing by a few hours' work per day sufficient food to nourish, not only his own family, but a hundred men more at the least. In their most glowing dreams of the future, socialists do not go beyond American extensive culture, which, after all, is but the infancy of agricultural art. But the thinking agriculturist has broader ideas today. His conceptions are on a far grander scale. He only asks for a fraction of an acre in order to produce sufficient vegetables for a family. And to feed 25 horned beasts, he needs no more space than he formerly required to feed one. His aim is to make his own soil, to defy seasons and climate, to warm both air and earth around the young plant, to produce, in a word, on one acre what he used to gather from 50 acres, and that without any excessive fatigue, by greatly reducing, on the contrary, the total of former labor. He knows that we will be able to feed everybody by giving to the culture of the fields no more time than what each can give with pleasure and joy. This is the present tendency of agriculture. While scientific men, led by Liebig, the creator of the chemical theory of agriculture, often got on the wrong tack in their love of mere theories, unlettered agriculturists opened up new roads to prosperity. Market gardeners of Paris, Troyes, Rouen, Scotch and English gardeners, Flemish and Lombardian farmers, peasants of Jersey, Guernsey, and farmers on the Scilly Isles have opened up such large horizons that the mind hesitates to grasp them. While up till lately a family of peasants needed at least 17 to 20 acres to live on the produce of the soil, and we know how peasants live, we can now no longer say what is the minimum area on which all that is necessary to a family can be grown, even including articles of luxury, if the soil is worked by means of intensive culture. Twenty years ago, it could already be asserted that a population of 30 million individuals could live very well without importing anything on what could be grown in Great Britain. But now, when we see the progress recently made in France, in Germany, in England, 
and when we contemplate the new horizons which open before us, we can say that in cultivating the earth as it is already cultivated in many places, even on poor soils, 50 or 60 million inhabitants to the territory of Great Britain would still be a very feeble proportion to what man could extract from the soil. In any case, as we are about to demonstrate, we may consider it as absolutely proved that if tomorrow Paris and the two departments of Seine et Seine-et-Oise organized themselves as an anarchist commune in which all worked with their hands, and if the entire universe refused to send them a single bushel of wheat, a single head of cattle, a single basket of fruit, and left them only the territory of the two departments, they could not only produce all the corn, meat, and vegetables necessary for themselves, but also vegetables and fruit which are now articles of luxury, in sufficient quantities, for all. And, in addition, we affirm that the sum total of this labour would be far less than that expanded at present to feed these people with corn harvested in Auvergne and Russia, with vegetables produced a little everywhere by extensive agriculture, and with fruit grown in the south. It is self-evident that we in no wise desire all exchange to be suppressed, nor that each region should strive to produce that which will only grow in its climate by a more or less artificial culture. But we care to draw attention to the fact that the theory of exchange, such as is understood today, is strangely exaggerated. That exchange is often useless and even harmful. We assert, moreover, that people have never had a right conception of the immense labour of southern wine growers, nor that of Russian and Hungarian corn growers, whose excessive labour could also be very much reduced if they adopted intensive culture instead of their present system of extensive agriculture. Section 2 It would be impossible to quote here the mass of facts on which we base our assertions. We are therefore obliged to refer our readers, who want further information, to another book, Fields, Factories, and Workshops. Footnote 1. Above all, we earnestly invite those who are interested in the question to read several excellent works published in France and elsewhere, and of which we give a list at the close of this book. Footnote 2. As to the inhabitants of the large towns, who have, as yet, no real notion of what agriculture can be, we advise them to explore the surrounding market gardens. They need but observe and question the market gardeners, and a new world will be open to them. They will then be able to see what European agriculture may be in the 20th century, and they will understand with what force the social revolution will be armed when we know the secret of taking everything we need from the soil. A few facts will suffice to show that our assertions are in no way exaggerated. We only wish them to be preceded by a few general remarks. We know in what a wretched condition European agriculture is. If the cultivator of the soil is not plundered by the landowner, he is robbed by the state. If the state taxes him moderately, the moneylender enslaves him by means of promissory notes, and soon turns him into the simple tenant of soil, belonging in reality to a financial company. 
the landlord, the state, and the banker, thus plunders the cultivator by means of rent, taxes, and interest. The sum varies in each country, but it never falls below the quarter, very often the half, of the raw produce. In France and in Italy, agriculturists paid the state quite recently as much as 44% of the gross produce. Moreover, the share of the owner and of state always goes on increasing, as soon as the cultivator has obtained more plentiful crops by prodigies of labor, invention, or initiative, the tribute he will owe to the landowner, the state, and the banker will augment in proportion. If he doubles the number of bushels reaped per acre, rent will be doubled, and taxes too, and the state will take care to raise them still more if the prices go up, and so on. In short, Everywhere the cultivator of the soil works 12 to 16 hours a day. These three ventures take from him everything he might lay by. They rob him everywhere of what would enable him to improve his culture. This is why agriculture progresses so slowly. The cultivator can only occasionally make some progress in some exceptional regions under quite exceptional circumstances following upon a quarrel between the three vampires. And yet we have said nothing about the tribute every cultivator pays to the manufacturer. Every machine, every spade, every barrel of chemical manure is sold to him at three or four times its real cost. Nor let us forget the middleman, who levies the lion's share of the earth's produce. This is why, during all this century of invention and progress, Agriculture has only improved from time to time on very limited areas. Happily, there have always been small oases, neglected for some time by the vulture. And here we learn what intensive agriculture can produce for mankind. Let us mention a few examples. In the American prairies, which, however, only yield meager spring wheat crops from 7 to 15 bushels acre, and even these are often marred by periodical droughts, 500 men, working only during 8 months, produce the annual food of 50,000 people. With all the improvements of the last 3 years, one man's yearly labor, 300 days, yields, delivered in Chicago as flour, the yearly food of 250 men. Here the result is obtained by a great economy in manual labor. On those vast plains, plowing, harvesting, thrashing are organized in an almost military fashion. There is no useless running to and fro, no loss of time. All is done with parade-like precision. This is agriculture on a large scale. Extensive agriculture. Which takes the soil from nature without seeking to improve it. When earth has yielded all it can, they leave it. They seek elsewhere for a virgin soil, to be exhausted in its turn. But here is also intensive agriculture, which has already worked, and will be more and more so, by machinery. Its object is to cultivate a limited space well, to manure, to improve, to concentrate work, and to obtain the largest crop possible. This kind of culture spreads every year. And whereas agriculturists in the south of France and on the fertile plains of Western America are content with an average crop of 11 to 15 bushels per acre by extensive culture, 
they reap roughly 39, even 55, and sometimes 60 bushels per acre in the north of France. The annual consumption of a man is thus obtained from less than a quarter of an acre. And the more intense the culture is, the less work is expended to obtain a bushel of wheat. Machinery replaces man at the preliminary work and for the improvements needed by the land, such as draining, clearing of stones, which will double the crops in future, once and forever. Sometimes nothing but keeping the soil free of weeds without manuring allows an average soil to yield excellent crops from year to year. It has been done for 40 years in succession at Rothstamstead in Hertfordshire. However, let us not write an agricultural romance, but be satisfied with a crop of 44 bushels per acre. That needs no exceptional soil, but merely a rational culture. And let us see what it means. The 3,600,000 individuals who inhabit the two departments of Seine and Seine-et-Oise consume yearly for their food a little less than 22 million bushels of cereals, chiefly wheat. And in our hypothesis, they would have to cultivate, in order to obtain this crop, 494,200 acres out of the 1,507,300 acres which they possess. It is evident they would not cultivate them with spades. They would need too much time. 96 workdays of 5 hours per acre. It would be preferable to improve the soil once and for all, to drain what needed draining, to level what needed leveling, to clear the soil of stones, were it even necessary to spend 5 million days of 5 hours in this preparatory work, an average of 10 workdays to each acre. Then they would plough with the steam digger, which would take 1 and 3 fifths of a day per acre, and they would give another 1 and 3 fifths of a day for working with the double plough. Seeds would be sorted by steam instead of taken haphazard, and they would be carefully sown in rows instead of being thrown to the four winds. Now all this work would not take 10 days of 5 hours per acre. Now all this work would not take 10 days of 5 hours per acre if the work were done under good conditions. But if 10 million workdays are given to good culture during 3 or 4 years, the result will be that later on, crops of 44 to 55 bushels per acre will be obtained by only working half the time. 15 million workdays will thus have been spent to give bread to a population of 3,600,000 inhabitants, and the work would be such that everyone could do it without having muscles of steel, or without having even worked the ground before. The initiative and the general distribution of work would come from those who know the soil. As to the work itself, there is no townsman of either sex so enfeebled as to be incapable of looking after machines and of contributing his share to agrarian work after a few hours' apprenticeship. Well, when we consider that in present chaos there are, in a city like Paris, without counting the unemployed of the upper classes, there are always about 100,000 workmen out of work in their several trades. We would see the power lost in our present organization would alone suffice to give, with a rational culture, all the bread that is necessary for the three or four million inhabitants of the two departments. 
We repeat, this is no fancy dream, and we have not yet spoken of the truly intensive agriculture. We have not yet depended upon the wheat, obtained in three years by Mr. Hallett, of which one grain, replanted, produced 5,000 or 6,000, and occasionally 10,000 grains, which would give the wheat necessary for a family of five individuals on an area of 120 square yards. On the contrary, we have only mentioned what is being already achieved by numerous farmers in France, England, Belgium, etc., and what might be done tomorrow with the experience and knowledge acquired already by practice on a large scale. But without a revolution, neither tomorrow nor after tomorrow will see it done, because it is not to the interest of landowners and capitalists, and because peasants who would find their profit in it have neither the knowledge nor the money nor the time to obtain what is necessary to go ahead. The society of today has not reached this stage, but let Parisians proclaim an anarchist commune, and they will of necessity come to it, because they will not be foolish enough to continue making luxurious toys, which Vienna, Warsaw, and Berlin make as well already, and to run the risk of being left without bread. Moreover, agricultural work, by the help of machinery, would soon become the most attractive and the most joyful of all occupations. Quote, we have had enough jewellery and enough dolls' clothes, they would say. It is high time for the workers to recruit their strength in agriculture, to go in search of vigour, of impressions of nature, of the joy of life, that they have forgotten in the dark factories of the suburbs. End quote. In the Middle Ages, it was alpine pasturelands, rather than guns, which allowed the Swiss to shake off lords and kings. Modern agriculture will allow a city to revolt, to free itself from the combined bourgeois forces. Section 3 We have seen how the three and one-half million inhabitants of the two departments around Paris could find ample bread by cultivating only a third of their territory. Let us now pass on to cattle. Englishmen, who eat much meat, consume, on an average, a little less than £220 a year per adult. Supposing all meats consumed were oxen, that makes a little less than the third of an ox. An ox a year for five individuals, including children, is already a sufficient ration. For three and one-half million inhabitants, this would make an annual consumption of 700,000 head of cattle. Today, with the pasture system, we need at least 5 million acres to nourish 660,000 head of cattle. This makes 9 acres per each head of horned cattle. Nevertheless, with prairies moderately watered by spring water, as recently done on thousands of acres in the southwest of France, 1 and 1 fourth million acres already suffice. But if intensive culture is practiced and beetroot is grown for fodder, you only need a quarter of that area, that is to say, about 310,000 acres. And if we have recourse to maize and practice ensilage, the compression of fodder while green, like Arabs, we obtain fodder on an area of 217,500 acres. In the environs of Milan, 
where sewer water is used to irrigate the fields, fodder for two to three horned cattle per each acre is obtained on an area of 22,000 acres and on a few favored fields, up to 177 ton and on a few favored fields, up to 177 tons of hay to the 10 acres have been cropped, the yearly provender of 36 milch cows. Nearly 9 acres per head of cattle are needed under the pasture system, and only 2 and 1 half acres for 9 oxen or cows under the new system. These are the opposite extremes in modern agriculture. In Guernsey, on a total of 9,884 acres utilized, nearly half, 4,695 acres, are covered with cereals and kitchen gardens. Only 5,189 acres remain as meadows. On these 5,189 acres, 1,480 horses, 7,260 head of cattle, 900 sheep, and 4,200 pigs are fed, which makes more than three head of cattle per two acres, without reckoning the sheep or the pigs. It is needless to add that the fertility of the soil is made by seaweed and chemical manures. Returning to our three and one-half million inhabitants belonging to Paris and its environs, we see that the land necessary for the rearing of cattle comes down from 5 million acres to 197,000. Well then, let us not stop at the lowest figures. Let us take those of ordinary intensive culture. <coughs> Let us take those of ordinary intensive culture. Let us liberally add to the land necessary for smaller cattle, which must replace some of the horned beasts and allow 395,000 acres for the rearing of cattle. 494,000, if you like, on the 1,013,000 acres remaining after bread has been provided for the people. Let us be generous and give 5 million workdays to put this land into a productive state. After having therefore employed in the course of a year 20 million workdays, half of which are for permanent improvements, we shall have bread and meat assured to us, without including all the extra meat obtainable in the shape of fowls, pigs, rabbits, etc., without taking into consideration that a population provided with excellent vegetables and fruits consumes less meat than Englishmen who supplement their poor supply of vegetables by animal food. Now, how much do 20 million workdays of 5 hours make per inhabitant? Very little, indeed. A population of 3 and 1 half millions must have at least 1,200,000 adult men, and as many women capable of work. Well then, to give bread and meat to all, it would need only 17 half days of work a year per man. Add 3 million workdays, or double that number if you like, in order to obtain milk. That will make 25 workdays of 5 hours in all. Nothing more than a little pleasurable country exercise. To obtain the three principal products. Bread, meat, and milk. The three products which, after housing, cause daily anxiety to nine-tenths of mankind. And yet, let us not tire of repeating, these are not 
fancy dreams. We have only told what is, what been, obtained by experience on a large scale. Agriculture could be organized in this way tomorrow if property laws and general ignorance did not offer opposition. The day Paris has understood that to know what you eat and how it is produced is a question of public interest. The day when everybody will have understood that this question is infinitely more important than all the parliamentary debates of the present times, on that day, the revolution will be an accomplished fact. Paris will take possession of the two departments and cultivate them, and then the Parisian worker, after having laboured a third of his existence in order to buy bad and insufficient food, will produce it himself, under his walls, within the enclosure of his forts, if they still exist, and in a few hours of healthy and attractive work. And now we pass on to fruit and vegetables. Let us go outside Paris and visit the establishment of a market gardener who accomplishes wonders, ignored by learned economists, at a few miles from the academies. Let us visit, suppose, M. Ponce, the author of a work on market gardening, who makes no secret of what the earth yields him, and who has published it all along, M. Ponce, and especially his workmen, work like redacted. It takes eight men to cultivate a plot a little less than three acres, 2.7. They work 12 and even 15 hours a day, that is to say, three times more than is needed. 24 of them would not be too many. To which M. Ponce will probably answer that as he pays the terrible sum of £100 rent a year for his 2.7 acres of land, and £100 for manure bought in the barracks, he is obliged to exploit. He would no doubt answer, Being exploited, I exploit in my turn. His installation has also cost him £1,200, of which certainly more than half went as tribute to the idle barons of industry. In reality, this establishment represents at most 3,000 workdays, probably much less. But let us examine his crops. Nearly 10 tons of carrots, nearly 10 tons of onions, radishes, and small vegetables, 6,000 heads of cabbage, 3,000 heads of cauliflower, 5,000 baskets of tomatoes, 5,000 dozen of choice fruit, 154,000 salads. In short, a total of 123 tons of vegetables and fruit to 2.7 acres. 120 yards long by 109 yards broad, which makes more than 44 tons of vegetables to the acre. But a man does not eat more than 660 pounds of vegetables and fruit a year, and two and one-half acres of a market garden yield enough vegetables and fruit to richly supply the table of 350 adults during the year. Thus, 24 persons employed a whole year in cultivating 2.7 acres of land and only five working hours a day would produce sufficient vegetables and fruit for 350 adults, which is equivalent at least to 500 individuals. To put it another way, in cultivating like Monsieur Ponce and his results have already been surpassed, 350 adults should each give a little more than 100 hours a year. 
103 to produce vegetables and fruit necessary for 500 people. Let us mention that such a production is not the exception. It takes place under the walls of Paris on an area of 2,220 acres by 5,000 market gardeners. Only these market gardeners are reduced nowadays to a state of beasts of burden in order to pay an average rent of £32 per acre. But do not these facts, which can be verified by everyone, prove that 17,300 acres of the 519,000 remaining to us would suffice to give all necessary vegetables, as well as a liberal amount of fruit, to the three and one-half million inhabitants of our two departments. As to the quantity of work necessary to produce these fruits and vegetables, it would amount to 50 million workdays of five hours, 50 days per adult male, if we measure by the market gardener's standard of work. But we could reduce this quantity if we had recourse to the process in vogue in Jersey and Guernsey. We must also remember that the Paris market gardener is forced to work so hard because he mostly produces early season fruits, the high prices of which have to pay for fabulous rents, and that this system of culture entails more work than is necessary for growing the ordinary staple food vegetables and fruit. Besides, the market gardeners of Paris, not having the means to make a great outlay on their gardens, and being obliged to pay heavily for glass, wood, iron, and coal, obtained their artificial heat out of manure, while it can be had at much less cost in hothouses. And that concludes this week's reading. We're right near the finish line now, and next week we can finish off this chapter and the book itself. So this is effectively our last call. If you do have questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, any thoughts you want to let me know about the book or the podcast in general right before I start a new book soon, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or you can get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can find lots of other podcasts if you go to abnormalmapping.com. A new movie podcast has just been added to the Patreon that seems like it'll be fun if you want to check that out at the $5 level. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.